Jesus, thank you um, for time to reflect on the truth of your word, and I pray that we would be people filled with hope, and I pray that we would anticipate and long for your return and uh, the new heavens and the new earth that is our future with you. And we ask this in your name. So I, I don't have slides this week either. Um, so if you have your notes and want to follow along, you can. There will be a couple things that I read, so I'll just tell you the page number of the notes um, if that helps you as I'm reading long passages. So the, um, this week we're talking about the doctrine of future things. More commonly, you probably hear it as end times or eschatology. So that's the study of the end, which includes what we would say our personal eschatology, um, but also the end in the sense of world events, the return of Christ, and new heavens and new earth. So maybe it sounds like splicing hairs, but that's where the term future things is intended to communicate all of that, not just the end of human history or something like that. So the big idea with this doctrine is something you've heard before, and that's what matters most in the end matters most now. That's, that's the bottom line when it comes to studying eschatology. What matters most in the end matters most now. And questions for us to think about for application would be, uh, how does my vision of the end shape my life in the present? How does living with the end in mind help me live faithfully today? Those are the big application questions. Um, so I'm going to take a, a little bit of a different approach to presenting eschatology. Uh, last week I, I talked about how in the 20th century, ecclesiology, or the study of the church, was a neglected doctrine, and in the 70s and 80s, eschatology was all the rage, right? So in the 20th century, we underemphasized ecclesiology, overemphasized eschatology. Today, there's a resurgence of interest in ecclesiology, and I would say, in my experience at least, at the seminary, uh, nobody really talks about eschatology, which is kind of funny. Uh, whether that's good or bad, you know, if that's an overcorrection, remains to be seen. Uh, I think if you focus on the healthy aspects of eschatology, that could be uh, a good thing. Um, and there are reasons why eschatology was popular uh, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, largely, it had to do with one particular stripe of eschatology, uh, known as dispensational eschatology, or dispensationalism. We can talk about that. Um, but uh, it's hard to overstate how much that particular stripe of eschatology influenced uh, things like American foreign policy. So think of everything happening with Israel today, right now. Um, yeah, just this um, dominant 
uh, cultural understanding of they took that to be this is the Christian view of uh, the end. So there are entire books, non-religious books, about um, Christian dispensational eschatology. Um, so I was dreading this lecture, <laughs> and I'm tempted to say because I hate eschatology, but that's not true. <laughs> uh, at least it ought not to be true. Uh, I'm what I grow tired of or exasperated with is how eschatology is handled, uh, typically. And so in this lecture, as I said, I'm going to take a different approach. And it's going to require us to reorient how we think about the end. Um, and so with that in mind, there's a quote from Herman Bavinck. And I think he's spot on here. And here's what he says. He says, eschatology, therefore, is rooted in Christology. So the study of Christ. Eschatology, therefore, is rooted in Christology and is itself Christology, the teaching of the final complete triumph of Christ and his kingdom over all his enemies. So that is a crucial point to underscore, that eschatology is properly connected to Christology, the study of Christ. Uh, the person and work of Christ. So it has to be connected to Jesus uh, because everything is oriented toward the summing up of all things in Christ, that he would be all in all. So Ephesians 1, 9 through 10 um, says, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. And then Paul in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, speaks of Jesus's uh, incarnation, his saving work on the cross. And then Paul says, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So all things exist for the exaltation of Jesus as Lord overall. That's what eschatology is about. The Lordship of Christ. That's what the end is oriented to. And I think we go astray when we handle eschatology siloed off on its own, disconnected from the rest of systematic theology and disconnected from Jesus in particular. So um, there's one theologian who said eschatology is not really its own uh, systematic loci. So that's a, that's a word that means category. Uh, it's not its own category. Um, it's too deeply connected to Christ. Um, and I think when you treat it as an independent doctrine, that's when you get uh, crazy with a bunch of charts and all the rest uh, and timelines, and we think of that as disconnected from Jesus. Um, and often uh, when we approach um, the book of Revelation, we see that as a key to world events and a timeline for the future, uh, but rather what is Revelation about? 
Well, verse one says it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's a book that's saturated with the worship of the lamb. Uh, more so, we, we take revelation and think, oh, it's all about the antichrist. Well, the word antichrist isn't in revelation. <laughs> so it's all about the worship of the lamb. That's what revelation is about. It's about Jesus and the triumph over Christ's enemies. Um, so that lends itself to another important thing to underscore when we think about eschatology. So first, it's properly put under the category of Christology. And the second point to emphasize would be that we have to study eschatology in light of the biblical narrative. So the meta-narrative of scripture, the grand narrative, the big story, the meta-narrative of the Bible, think of it like a four-part symphony. So it's one symphony with four movements. Um, and what are the movements? Well, the movements are creation, fall, redemption, new creation. So it's one redemptive uh, historical drama uh, occurring in four parts. And so we can't think of eschatology outside of that narrative. So the Bible... When we approach the Bible, it's not a storehouse of facts, as some systematic theologies treat it. Uh, it is full of what we call propositional content, so it's full of truth claims, uh, but those truths come packaged in a narrative, in an unfolding story. And so when we seek to understand what the Bible says or what the Bible teaches, we have to understand how did this particular text or passage come to us? And what, where does this text fall in the timeline of redemptive history? Um, and where does it fit in with where redemptive history is going? So that's a very different approach to doing theology than simply treating this as a bunch of uh, proof texts that you just pluck out of the narrative. So as I said, God's redemptive plan is summing up all things in Christ. Eschatology is not an isolated doctrine, um, and it's not separated from Christ or the biblical narrative. Um, you could say it another way, and you could say eschatology doesn't begin in Revelation. Eschatology begins in Genesis. So last week, we read Genesis 3.15, what we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel proclamation, Genesis 3.15. says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And so this is considered the first promise of the gospel because it's seeing this as fulfilled in Christ. The woman's seed, someone from the woman's um, line, would be wounded himself, the serpent would strike his heel, he would be wounded, uh, but ultimately he would crush the serpent's head. He would triumph over Satan. And so Christ defeats the power of sin and Satan on the cross. Uh, Colossians 
It says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. And it's helpful to, for a historical analogy to think of uh, D-Day and V-Day. So D-Day, they stormed the beaches of Normandy, and then the war lasted for a number of years until V-Day, victory. So Jesus did, as Colossians 2.15 says, he destroyed the rulers and authorities, the power of sin and death on the cross, but we wait for the full consummation of that victory over sin, death, and the grave. So, if you turn to Revelation 20, verse 2 and 10, uh, those are parallel passages to Genesis 3.15. And it speaks of the angel of the Lord seizing the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And then later in verse 10, it says, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So again, there's that promise fulfillment, Genesis 3.15, Revelation 20. It's a, it's a similar image that's ultimately fulfilled in Christ and his triumph over the devil. Uh, you can also think of Revelation 21 and 22 as the consummation of Genesis 1 and 2. So new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, are the consummation, they are a true and better Eden. Um, so that understanding of eschatology understands new creation in light of the whole storyline, starting from creation and moving to new creation. So those are just two important things to think about. First, eschatology is connected to Christology, and then second, that's embedded in a narrative. So uh, I want to look at next just different creedal affirmations of the return of Christ. So what has the church historically uh, proclaimed when we uh, talk about Christ's return? And uh, these are found on page 6 and 7. Um, they're the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And you'll notice there that these statements, even in the creeds, fall under the section or the paragraph dealing with the Son. So even in the creeds, eschatology is connected to Christology. So in the Apostles' Creed, we proclaim um, that Jesus ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So that's the ascension and session of Christ. So the session of Christ is seating, seated at the right hand of the Father. And then from there, so he has ascended, and from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. So that's what we proclaim about Christ's return. Why is he coming back to judge the living and the dead? And then at the end of the creed, we proclaim that we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. 
And then the Nicene Creed, very similar, uh, says he ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And then again, at the end, we proclaim, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So as you look at those creeds, you would ask yourself, okay, what's orthodox? If the creeds are kind of the, the standard of what's considered orthodoxy, sound doctrine, what's orthodox in those creeds regarding eschatology? Uh, there's nothing in there about the millennium. We can talk about that, the millennial kingdom. Uh, that gets so much discussion in uh, conversations about eschatology, pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, ah-millennialism, and the rest. Um, the creeds have nothing to do with that. <laughs> what do they proclaim? They affirm he will come again in glory. And that's not to say that um, the millennium and your understanding of that is unimportant or it doesn't matter, but it's only to say that's not a primary theological issue when it comes to what's considered an orthodox understanding of eschatology, the return of Christ. So um, I want to look at just seven key points to underscore when thinking about Christ's return. And I get these from a theologian named Ian Hamilton, and they're pretty obvious, but I hope you also, I hope that's a comfort to you. Uh, and that's what I hope in all teaching of theology. Um, it, should be, uh, it should be something you've never heard of before. Or, or I said that wrong. <laughs> it shouldn't be something you've never heard of before. You know, I mean, yes, there's nuance to that. And there might be categories or helpful distinctions to help you think about it. Um, but really, when we're, we're teaching theology, it should sound very basic. Uh, you don't want to be new for the sake of doing something novel. Um, so a lot of these will sound pretty straightforward and obvious, but that should be a comfort. So the first thing to underscore about Jesus's return, he will certainly return. That's the first thing. He will come again. So after the ascension and the session of Christ, so after he's seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus now reigns as the crucified, risen, exalted king. And Jesus, when he ascended on high, told his disciples to wait for the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit, for equipping the church for the mission of the church. And when Jesus ascends to heaven, they stand there with mouths agape. They're, they're just staring in the sky. And, uh, and then two angels come and appear to them. And they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. So that's the idea of he will return on the clouds with glory. So they're standing there. And the angels come and tell them he's going to return in the same way that he ascended. 
And th that's a certainty of that promise. Jesus did not abandon them. Uh, he will certainly return in the way that he left. You might consider the certainty of Acts 17.31. It says, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So this means God has set a day in which he will judge the world and he has appointed a judge and the person he has appointed is Christ. And this says, well, how do we know Christ is the appointed judge? And he says, well, the proof of this is the resurrection because only God can raise the dead. Jesus rose from the dead, so he must be God. He has authority to judge. So there's certainty to this promise um, that God will, and what does the judgment include? That's putting the world to rights. So talk about restorative justice. Uh, dealing with evil and sin once and for all, finally. There's a certainty uh, that God will not allow injustice and sin uh, to exist. There's a certainty to his promise that he will return and Christ will be the one with authority to dispense that judgment. Second point is that Jesus will return personally and visibly. So just like the uh, ascension passages in Acts highlight, Jesus will return in the same way that he ascended. So there's continuity. His return will be personal. It's not symbolic. His return will be his risen glorified body. We will see him. So 1 John 3, 2 says, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So it's a personal, visible return. Many New Testament passages speak of the appearing. Uh, so it's clearly a, a visible return. And um, yeah, think of God now, the person of the Son assumed a human nature and now the person of the Son eternally exists in two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. And so uh, that means he's embodied, he's in a glorified body, so when he returns, it will be visible. Uh, point number three, his return, he will return in glory and with power. So Jesus, quoting from the book of Daniel in Matthew twenty six sixty four. Jesus says, but I tell you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds with heaven. So the Son of Man in Daniel is this divine figure who has authority to judge. So Jesus is identifying himself with that uh, title, the Son of Man. And Mark eight thirty eight. Jesus says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Point number four is that he will come, when he comes to return, this will mark the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. So Revelation 21, one through five, there's a, uh, a theologian who says that, uh, you know, heaven is not some floaty place, but that it, it is the restoration. It is a new heavens and a new earth. So it is, uh, it's very uh, this worldly apart from sin. Uh, so Revelation 21, one through five, John's vision, he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. So this is, uh, Romans 8 speaks of all of creation groaning uh, for the, this new creation, restoration. And again, as I said, uh, think of Revelation 20 through 22 as a new Eden. The fifth point is that at Jesus' return, there will be judgment. So this is separation, uh, the separation of uh, sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tare. So Hebrews 9, 27 through 28 speaks of our uh, personal death. It says, and just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear for a second time, not to bear sin, because he's already dealt with it, uh, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So this is the, the separation that begins what we call the eternal state of eternal reward in the presence of the Lord or eternal punishment. So 2 Timothy 4.1, um, Paul charges Timothy, he says, I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus who is going to judge the living and the dead and because of his appearing and his kingdom. So this judgment will occur at the return of Christ. Point number six is that when he returns, he casts Satan into the lake of fire. Uh, we've talked about that. And then point number seven is that God will be all in all the Lordship of Christ. So Colossians, uh, not Colossians, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28, um, 
It says, as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, and resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, for just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for God has put everything under his feet. And then the end of that verse says, when everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. So this is the the return of Christ. Everything is subject to the lordship of Christ. He is Christ over all things. So, I mean, like I said, those are pretty basic affirmations of the return of Christ. Um, So now, just to help us think about eschatology in more detail, I want to follow... Uh, a confession of faith known as the 1689 Confession or the Second London Baptist Confession. Um, for you people who are interested in history, this is based on the Westminster Confession, which is a Presbyterian document, and basically the London Baptists uh, plagiarized. <laughs> they copied the Westminster and tweaked it Uh, with some Baptist distinctives, basically, with their belief on baptism and the church. Uh, But apart from that, it's pretty much the same as the Westminster Confession. So it's known as the 1689 Confession. Um, I think the Westminster and thus the 1689 Confession is one of the great um, statements of faith. It's just theologically rich. So this will help us think through some matters of eschatology. So this comes from chapter 31, uh, and this is found on page 10 of my notes. This is on um, death and the body, um, the resurrection of the dead. So it says, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness are received into paradise where they are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torment and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places, for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledgeth none. So this paragraph affirms what theologians call the intermediate state. And I recognize, I said, you shouldn't hear anything new, and I know when uh, Dr. Allison was here and he taught on the intermediate state, uh, that was like the first time people ever considered the intermediate state. Um, 
So I, I recognize that. Um, but what is the intermediate state? Well, it's an abnormal state of human existence. So the proper state of human existence, we would say, is our embodiment, that we are a body-soul unity, body-soul hybrids. Death, physical death, is the cessation of our physical bodies, and so it entails a separation of body and soul. So the physical organism of the body ceases to function, but the soul continues in existence, sustained by God. So Christians don't believe in the immortality of souls in the sense that there's something intrinsic to a human soul that exists eternally. We believe that uh, souls are immortal in the sense that they're sustained by God. So apart from God, our souls are not immortal, but God sustains us in existence. So when our physical body dies, our soul is held together in existence by God. So Genesis 3.19 speaks of, um, he says, you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it, for you are dust and you will return to dust. So that's the, the physical aspect of our bodies returns to the dust from which we were made. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12.7 says the dust returns to the earth as it once was, the spirit returns to God who gave it. So in between the present time, uh, when we die and the final resurrection that accompanies the return of Christ, we continue to exist in this intermediate state. And so what does this mean? Well, for the believer who dies, that means we enter immediately into the presence of the Lord, even though we don't have a body. Uh, we're disembodied, but we're in the Lord's presence. So Jesus on the cross says to the thief next to him, when he said, him, said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Similarly, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, Paul says, so we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. In fact, we are confident and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So to be apart from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And then Paul picks up this in Philippians when he says, I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Uh, so in a colloquial sense, um, believers who die are in heaven. Um, but we have to qualify that. We don't just immediately jump outside the space-time continuum and exist as if the final resurrection and second coming has already taken place. So uh, we die, we are in heaven insofar as heaven is where the Lord is, in the presence of the Lord. 
And so for the non-believer, they too exist in an intermediate state. Uh, But instead of entering immediately into the presence of the Lord, they enter immediately into eternal punishment, though it's disembodied. Uh, But we believe in a resurrection for everyone, some a resurrection to life, others a resurrection to eternal punishment. So I'll continue a little more. This is in chapter 31, page 11. It says, At the last day, such of the saints are found alive, shall not sleep, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised with the selfsame bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. So basically, there's a continuity of identity. The bodies of the unjust shall, by the power of Christ, be raised to dishonor. That's the idea of the unbeliever who dies, enters the intermediate state of punishment, uh, but by the power of Christ, they will be resurrected, embodied, and go back to eternal punishment. So it's very strange. Uh, The bodies of the just, the righteous, by his spirit unto honor uh, and be made comfortable with his own glorious body. So the same is true for us. We die, enter the intermediate state, await the resurrection of our body, and then we'll exist forever in a glorified body in heaven, in the new creation. So both believers and unbelievers await the resurrection of the body. And as I said, there will be a continuity of identity Uh, Our bodies are not exactly the same, but what it means when it says uh, the self-same body, that's getting at continuity of the person. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 details this resurrection. Acts 24, 25 says, I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, and there will be a resurrection both of the righteous and the unrighteous. And then Jesus, in John 5, 29, says those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. So we both await the resurrection of our bodies. Now, I want to deal with some objections to the intermediate state or some qualifications as to what it is and what it is not. So the first objection, I have a friend um, who goes here and he told me he doesn't believe in the intermediate state, says it's not biblical. Now I think my friend is mistaken. Now he's right to acknowledge that the biblical evidence or the biblical data is scarce, but that's not to say that it's unbiblical Uh, When there is little biblical evidence, we should be cautious in speculating so much about the nature of the intermediate state, how exactly it works, what it's like, those things, what takes place there. We get into the realm of speculation very quickly. However, I think there is sufficient uh, biblical support for it. If you want to read further on it, 
Greg Allison has a chapter in his book, Embodied, on the intermediate state. Uh, it's very accessible. He deals with some of the biblical texts. Um, Elizabeth's not here, but she always judges books by their cover. She said, this cover's terrible. But, and it is. But if you want a more of philosophical defense of it, uh, this book by John Cooper is great. It's called Body, Soul, and Life Everlasting. Um, he deals with this question of the intermediate state. This is kind of the definitive uh, biblical defense for it. Um, his book is really helpful, and he highlights why I think it's necessary to affirm, because the intermediate state is necessary uh, because it all goes back to theological anthropology, so our understanding of the human person and human nature. Uh, that's called human constitution. So what is a human nature constituted by? A body and a soul. Uh, we are body-soul unities. And so he affirms what he calls a holistic dualism, a psychosomatic unity. So unlike um, materialists, so people like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and the like, believe that all that we are is our physical bodies. And when our physical body ceases to function, we cease to exist because all we are is our body. So we would say, no, we, we are our body, but we're not only our bodies. We're comprised of body and soul. And so in light of that understanding of human nature as a body-soul unity and the, the biblical teaching on a future glorified body, we have to account for some sort of dualism that allows for even an abnormal or temporary separation of the body from the soul, um, where the soul of the person continues to exist apart from the body. Historically, the church has held to the intermediate state. Um, you don't get this if you read popular books about heaven. Um, but if you read like funeral liturgies of the church, you see that we are looking forward to the resurrection of our bodies. Uh, and now it's, you know, it's Halloween and you see RIP, rest in peace. That's what that's communicating. Uh, rest in the intermediate state, waiting for the resurrection of your body. So it's not just a spooky uh, thing. <laughs> There's Christian influence there. Um, so when you die, it's not a time warp, as I said, to the post-second coming of Jesus. Um, when you die, you go into the presence of the Lord, and we have to recognize that redemptive history is still unfolding. So it's not like back to the future when Doc, what's his name? I don't remember. Doc Brown. Yeah, Doc Brown pulls out the chart and there's like a parallel, parallel space-time continuum. There's whatever year it was, 1980-something, and then the other one. So um, we don't have a parallel space-time existence. So 
my friend who said he doesn't believe in the intermediate state, uh, he characterized death as ceasing to experience time. So in his mind, the intermediate state doesn't exist because we don't experience time. We've entered eternity. But I don't think that's really a solution. Um, because what he's arguing for is basically immediate resurrection, which I don't think the Bible teaches an immediate resurrection. So on my view, um, eschatological time, or time in the future, the new age, exists on the same historical timeline that we're currently in, and there would then be overlap at some point. So yes, God is eternal, he's timeless, but he's not atemporal. Now that God has created space and time, he acts in the world of time, though he's timeless. And so if I die today and Christ returns in 2080-something, there would be a temporal space between my death and that historical return. Um, and so I do believe that the new heavens and the new earth usher in that those are, um, when Jesus ushers those in, those are real historical events. So I don't think that the new heavens and the new earth exist right now as some sort of transcendent eternal reality. Uh, that is yet to happen. So yes, God eternally exists in all his perfections. When we die, we enter into his presence. Whatever that is, I don't know. Uh, but the Bible portrays this new heavens and new earth and the recreation of the cosmos as something that has not yet happened but it will happen as a historical event. And so my case in point for the intermediate state would be to look at Jesus' resurrection. Jesus didn't have this immediate resurrection. So either you have to say what happened to Jesus' death. Either he went extinct, uh, he ceased to exist, or he went into this intermediate state. And that would account for um, the person of the Son existing in two natures. So the human nature at death, there's a separation of body and soul, but the soul continues in existence. So even in death, Jesus exists with a human nature and a divine nature, even though the, the body part of his human nature died, his soul as a part of his human nature, continued to exist. Um, and then Jesus is the first fruit of our resurrection. So he's the, he's the pattern for what will happen with us. So anyway, biblical text, yes, I admit, is scant, um, but I think it goes back to your view of uh, theological anthropology and what a human person is. And there just seems to be, uh, there has to be some accounting for uh, some sort of dualism. Uh, things we want to avoid with the intermediate state would be an unconscious intermediate state. So Jesus 
telling the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, that is conscious. So it's not just a period of unconsciousness. You die, you're unconscious, the next thing you know is the historical new heavens and new earth. When you die, you're consciously immediately in the presence of the Lord. Um, and how does that work? Well, again, that's where you would say there's a whole distinction between the mind and the brain. Uh, the soul of the person is immaterial. It's not reduced to the brain. So even if the brain, if you're brain dead, uh, your mind, your soul continues to exist. Consciousness continues apart from the brain. Uh, we also want to avoid thinking of the intermediate state as a state of purgatory, uh, purification for our sins. Uh, connected to purgatory is this idea of a post-mortem opportunity for repentance. Uh, but Hebrews 9 says it's appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. So that seems to indicate that is the, uh, there's no um, chance for a, a post-mortem opportunity for repentance. Um, Philippians 1.23, Paul says uh, that it is far better. So the intermediate state for the believer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, that is far better. Hard to wrap our minds around, um, but it is better. And then the new creation, the new heavens and new earth will also be better. <laughs> Both will be better. Um, chapter 32 of the 1689 Confession affirms um, Christ's return, his judgment. Um, I'll read the first paragraph. It says, God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived on the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. So, you know, that's something that can be strange for us to think about, is what does the judgment look like for the believer? Um, what does the future judgment look like for somebody in Christ? 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you before God and Jesus Christ, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing, preach the word. So he's telling Timothy, take this seriously with your teaching and preaching because uh, Christ is going to return and judge. And then Jesus in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you on that day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. So again, we think of that. What does judgment look like for the believer 
Is this suddenly about works? No. We have been declared righteous in Christ. The verdict has been given. Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. So then what does judgment look like? Well, think about what the return of Christ is. It's, it's the putting the world to rights. It's restorative justice uh, and retributive justice. It's both. Um, the return of Christ is about the consummation and the manifestation of the glorious truth of the gospel. It's a revealing of the grace of God in Christ. So I think this means sins will be revealed, uh, but for the believer, the sins that are revealed are sins that have been bought and paid for. And so the revealing doesn't cause shame or guilt, but the revealing adds to the glory of God displaying his grace and his mercy and the forgiveness to us in Christ. So the judgment has already been given. Christ has paid uh, for our sins. He took our judgment. Uh, So the judgment for the believer in the future um, really is this, um, yeah, I think it's a, a manifestation of sins, proclamation of the grace in Christ, and then it's this ushering into our eternal reward. So we're right to feel uncomfortable with those passages, uh, but living with judgment in mind helps us to live righteously in the present. It helps us acknowledge the truth of the gospel. Christ has taken my judgment, therefore the proper response is to live for him with gratitude and faithfulness. Um, I don't think it will be sad for believers at the final judgment to see our sins revealed uh, because, as I said, the revealing of our sins, we're exalting Christ who has forgiven us for those sins. Anthony Hokema, he's a theologian. I like what he says about the final judgment for the believer. He says, the failures and shortcomings of believers will enter into the picture on the day of judgment. But, and this is the important point, the sins and shortcomings of believers will be judged in the judgment as forgiven sins, whose guilt has been totally covered by the blood of Christ. Um, I'm not gonna spend too much time. I'll try to hit some highlights as to um, this idea of eternal conscious punishment in hell. Um, If you wanna listen, I did a lecture on this in the past. Uh, So it's in in the same podcast series that these recordings are. You can find the one I did on uh, hell. I forget what it was called, but you can find it. So I'll just hit some highlights. But basically, the traditional historical understanding of hell is that it is eternal conscious punishment. Uh, The scriptural basis for belief in hell 
Uh, Jesus repeatedly talks about final judgment and the punishment of the wicked in Gehenna. Uh, where does this come from? It refers to likely what's called the Valley of Hinnom, which is outside of Jerusalem. And so if you read the prophets, Second uh, Kings, Second Chronicles, Jeremiah, the valley was the place where Israel adopted pagan religious practices of their neighbors. They burned incense, they worshiped false gods, they slaughtered the innocent in this valley. Uh, it was the place where the worship of the god of Molech took place. So Molech was a god to whom they sacrificed their children, uh, burned as an offering. And so that place is declared, uh, it is destroyed, declared unclean. And so the name of the valley is associated with God's wrath and his judgment. And so it becomes known as the place where God would consign people to suffer uh, God's punishment through everlasting fire. So that's the term that Jesus uses uh, when he talks about final judgment. Um, Matthew 25, 46 uh, Jesus says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's a lot we could unpack there, but the basic point is there's a parallelism of the wicked suffer eternally in hell, the righteous enjoy God's presence eternally in heaven. So eternal punishment, eternal life. So the, the two main um, contemporary challenges to this historic understanding of eternal conscious punishment are found in universalism, the belief that all will be saved, or annihilationism, uh, which is the cessation of existence of unbelievers. So there's widespread consensus in the church on the traditional understanding until about the 19th century, uh, which again is not, yeah, uh, you don't want to make a logical fallacy and just say, oh, because that's new, that means it's untrue. Um, but you should be suspect. <laughs> um, there's always people in the church that have held to divergent views on hell, uh, but those views were never considered mainstream until the 19th century, um, and then it becomes even more divergent in the 20th century. Uh, you see widespread abandonment of belief in hell as eternal punishment uh, for things that are more tolerable, things like universalism or annihilationism. Um, there's a two-volume work. I wish this guy would write like a, a, a synthesis of this two-volume work. It's called The Devil's Redemption, and it's a history of... Uh, Christian universalism. Uh, so there are other forms of universalism, some non-Christian forms, um, but he's specifically looking at, in Christian tradition, this idea of uh, universal restoration and reconciliation. Um, he's not in support of that, but uh, he's just presenting this historical development. Um, so it's a very good resource. I wish he would write like a, a small volume. Um, so let's define those terms, universalism and annihilationism. So annihilationism is the view that the wicked and hell are not punished eternally, 
but that their punishment actually results in the annihilation of their existence. Eventually, at some point, they cease to exist uh, because that view sees eternal punishment as unjust. Um, and so they interpret passages in the New Testament that speak of eternal destruction or eternal punishment. They would say, well, that doesn't mean eternal in the sense of duration of time. It just means uh, in the sense of completeness. It was complete punishment in the sense of finality. Um, they say that the word translated for eternal can have various uses. It doesn't always indicate endless duration. Instead, it could mean an age or a period of time. Um, so, for the annihilationist, though, eternal or hell is not eternal punishment, it is punishment for a period of time. Big problems with annihilationism is their interpretation of the word eternal uh, because it proves to be selective. So take Matthew 25, where Jesus speaks about the righteous experiencing eternal life and the wicked eternal punishment in the same statement, the same sentence. Well, when eternal is applied to the wicked in that sentence, it means a period of time. But when it's applied to the righteous in heaven, well, that would mean endless duration. So no annihilationist is going to try to argue that heaven only exists for a period of time. Um, the interpretation doesn't hold up, and that happens in the same sentence. So the word can't carry, that would just be illogical <laughs> for the word to carry two different meanings in the same sentence. Um, annihilationists also take up the argument that um, Essentially, they believe it's unjust that someone should suffer eternally. Um, but here's my trusty Bavink. Uh, Bavink is helpful, and he says, uh, if you think eternal punishment is incompatible with God's justice, then so is temporal punishment. So it doesn't matter if it's uh, eternal or limited. Really, you're saying, you're suggesting that any form of punishment is unjust. Um, and so I think this reveals a uniquely modern problem. Um, but I, I don't think the traditional doctrine of hell is incompatible with God's justice or God's love. Ultimately, I think it's incompatible with modern values and so if something is offensive to us, then we need to ask what modern value is that challenging? What assumption do I have um, that that is challenging? What would be an example of a modern value shaping aversion to eternal punishment? Would it be this idea that humans are by nature good? It's a low view of sin. Uh, or a no view of sin, <laughs> outright denial of sin, uh, pervasive depravity, things like that. So if humans are intrinsically good, then of course the doctrine of hell is unjust. 
Uh, the Bible teaches that God created man. He said it's very good when he created man in his image. Uh, but that image has been broken or distorted due to sin. So ultimately, it comes back to your doctrine of God. Who do you believe God is? God is the perfection of the divine attributes. He is essentially good and just. And it also goes back to your view of the nature of sin. What is sin? Um, it's not just weakness or lack. It's not just a minor imperfection. The intrinsic nature of sin is rebellion and hostility against God's holiness. So even though sin can be committed in a moment, temporally, the intrinsic nature of sin is infinite. It's eternal because it's rebellion against the eternal majesty and holiness of God. Universalism, as I said, there are various types of universalism, some Christian, some not. The basic idea is that all people will be saved. Uh, David Bentley Hart, who has become crazy, <laughs> Uh, wrote a book called That All Shall Be Saved, um, showing his cards. Um, so if not in this life, eventually you will have a chance to repent and be reconciled in the next. Um, Christian universalism would say that all people are reconciled through Christ. God's love is inclusive it eventually envelop all things. So Colossians 1.20 supports their view, they say, where Paul says, through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So some universalists take all things to mean all things. Hence, uh, McClyman's title, the devil's redemption. So the restoration of... Um, the reconciliation of all things would include Satan and demons and all the rest. Yeah, who? Who, no one or their view of the afterlife would be some sort of purgatory, some chance for reconciliation at some point. Yeah. So, um, so they, they believe they're having this uh, large vision of God's inclusive love. Um, I don't think that's what Colossians 1.20 is getting at. I don't think it's suggesting that demons and the devil himself will be reconciled to God. I think that Paul is highlighting the universal scope of salvation, that God's saving work is for all peoples. And so as Akil, you highlighted, universalists, if they believe in hell, essentially view it as uh, temporary or purgative. It's a place where you go to repent of your sins and eventually you're purged or cleansed of your sins. Uh, but as I've talked about before, purgatory doesn't have biblical support. Um, even Pope Benedict acknowledged the lack of biblical support for the doctrine and he appeals to what he calls late antique sensibility and Judaism, which crystallized into the Catholic teaching. So even he recognizes there's a lack of biblical support for this idea of purgatory. 
Um, Another popular theme in Christian universalism is the idea of God's overcoming power and grace and love. So God's love will overcome all evil. And so universalism is their attempt to answer the problem of evil. Uh, Why does evil exist? They say, well, eventually God's love will eradicate evil by reconciling all things to God. So there's a Catholic theologian named Hans Urs von Balthasar who calls his view hopeful universalism. So he doesn't come right out and say he's a universalist because to this day that's not Catholic teaching. Uh, But the title of his book is Telling and it's Dare We Hope? Question mark. Um, So his strategy is very skillful uh, because that sounds like a good thing. What's wrong with hoping that God reconciles all things? What's wrong with hoping that all will be saved? Doesn't God desire that all people be saved? And if you can't even dare to hope that all will be saved, well, then that's, that's unloving, unbiblical. Um, McClyman's interacts with that, and I like McClyman's analysis. And basically, uh, you know, he, he points out, well, that conception of hope is more like wishful thinking Whereas that's not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is a certain expectation. And so there's a quote from McClyman. He says, Christian hope is not mere wishfulness. It's not utopian. Instead, it's a joyful and confident expectation for the future that is grounded on God's promise. And when the Christian church embraces a message and attitude of wishfulness, then the genuine, reliable, well-founded Christian hope will be progressively weakened and eventually lost. Um, And then there's another quote I like from his book. He says, while universalism has undeniable curb appeal for the theological driver by, the universalist house proves to be not very livable. Uh, The longer one looks at this house and examines the plumbing, the wiring, the crawl space underneath, the less attractive it becomes. Um, so McClyman concludes his book um, with his so what, and his conclusion is that uh, for the person engaged in love of neighbor, the speculative question of who will be saved uh, proves to be a distracting question. So he's saying, just go love your neighbor, go preach the gospel, uh, and don't engage in the speculative question or wishful thinking. And so he redefines his view as it's not hope for all, but it's hope for each, which is this narrowing intentional, um, it, it puts this em- emphasis on personal evangelism. So that, that's the practical application of a doctrine of hell would be uh, go preach the gospel. Go love your neighbor uh, if you believe that uh, this is a real reality.